0: Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiative's podcast. My name is Oliver Hartwig and today we're joined by our resident historian and infrastructure expert Matthew Birchall. Great to have you on the podcast.
1: Thank you Oliver, great to be with you.
0: We want to talk about the eternal problem of infrastructure in New Zealand. It's a topic that surfaces every now and then, especially after cyclones when there's a massive rebuild to be done, especially when the government wants positive headlines and announces yet another harbour crossing for Auckland. But actually infrastructure goes a lot deeper. New Zealand has had decades and really more than a century of infrastructure policies that have shifted from one extreme to the other, from extremely local to extremely centralised, from privately-led infrastructure to government-led infrastructure. And so we at the initiative thought this would be a really good opportunity to have a more systematic view of infrastructure policy. And so we hired you last year um, as a historian to really do a deep dive into the history of New Zealand infrastructure. And at the time, you were quite new to the subject. Mm-hmm. How did you approach this project, and what were your expectations when you started it, now that it's coming to completion?
1: Well, yeah, you're right. I, I really had no background in, in infrastructure, um, and as a historian, the first port of call was to just jump in. Is that an advantage, by the way? Not to, not to
0: have a background, not to
1: start with any biases. I'm pretty agnostic on that. I think it can help, bringing fresh eyes to it. I think what I bring to this issue is the historical skill set. So people often talk about we need to take the long-term approach to infrastructure, but they don't really know much about the history of infrastructure. So I'm able to go a long way back and to reframe the debate. So I think that's where I, I add the value.
0: So over the course of the past year, you have become New Zealand's foremost Infrastructure historian because there's simply not that many of them. Yeah. It's a small field. <laughs> it's a very small field, I imagine. Actually, are there other people working in the field of infrastructure history in New Zealand?
1: I wouldn't say infrastructure history broadly conceived, but there are lots of people that have written wonderful books and articles on discrete topics, and that's been one of the the real pleasures of. of the job is going to talk to someone who knows you know everything about roads scott and, and wilson knowing or you
0: you probably would have read them all by now
1: yeah exactly and and so you start to get really acquainted with the the intricacies and i guess my uh, my task was to to knit everything together to get that bigger picture and to discern the yeah the the broader themes that are applicable for public policy today
0: well and let's dive straight into it and start maybe right at the beginning yep with someone who is usually regarded as a great hero of infrastructure delivery. (laughs) And you're laughing already because you know who I refer to. It's Julius Vogel, or as I would say with a German accent, uh, because it's such a German name, Vogel. Yeah. I would just say Julius
1: Vogel. (laughs) Vogel.
0: Uh, Most people probably don't realize Vogel in German means bird. Okay,
1: I I didn't know that. Julius
0: (laughs) Bird, He was prime minister, of course, in New Zealand in the 19th century, and he's regarded as one of the most influential prime ministers really for a long time because he gave New Zealand infrastructure. At least that's how he's celebrated today. You looked into Vogel's history and actually what he delivered and how he delivered it. Yeah. Your conclusions were a bit different? A
1: mixed picture. I think he was both a very influential treasurer and then premier. You know, I don't want to get too technical, but you know, Michael Bassett would say the first New Zealand prime minister is set in a little bit later on. But very influential. Keith Sinclair, the great uh, New Zealand historian, said he was the first politician of of real substance, colourful, colourful career. Um, in what way
0: colourful? Explain.
1: Well, he grew up in London. Interesting family background of Jewish merchants. He goes to chase gold. He's, he trains as a journalist, and he goes to to Australia to <laughs> to chase gold. But he's he's dabbling in journalism as well. And then he gets involved in New Zealand politics. He starts up the first So he uh, failed in business uh, and that's
0: why he became a politician. C-
1: correct, correct. <laughs> Comes to New Zealand and has a real outsized impact on what was quite a parochial New Zealand political scene. In a much smaller um, country. Uh, exactly. And he's he's shuffling back and forth between London and New Zealand later on in his career. He even writes a, a novel of all things, bit
0: of a larger than life character.
1: Larger than life character, and you know, New Zealand often doesn't have these types of oh. of figures. But when I first wrote wrote this chapter on Vogel, I, I sort of imbibed the great man of of history myth a little bit. You know, I got charged by you to write a history of you know successful infrastructure projects, and Vogel was the the guy that got things done, and and that's certainly true. I guess if you
0: ask ChatGPT who is the great hero in New Zealand <laughs> <Israel> infrastructure <laughs> history yeah, it, it would, would, probably it would be more. Vogel because yeah, everybody thinks that.
1: Yeah, all roads do lead back to Vogel. Yeah. I mean he was especially roads um, and rails, yeah, <laughs> roads and
0: rails and <laughs> telegraphs. Yeah. yeah. So, so actually is this a myth or this is just a prejudice or is there some truth to that?
1: There's some truth. I mean he was able to establish a national rail network you know, so he's very effective. But I think the problem is it cost a lot, and he rode roughshod over local opinion. And and so in a way... Yeah,
0: I was going to say, because (laughs) over the course of your research, I read several versions of the draft of the Vogel chapter, (laughs) and each version became less complimentary.
1: Yes, yes. And, you know, that's normal practice for a historian is your... Oh, you get
0: more negative over time.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, we're quite a pessimistic breed to begin with. Okay, uh, right.
0: Yeah. So what changed your mind? Why, Why is this myth of Vogel as the great infrastructure deliverer not quite correct?
1: Well, I think there's something in New Zealand political culture that, and I don't know why this is, but we like a big state.
0: We believe in the state. We believe,
1: yeah. We have a very benign view of the state. So if the state has been able to deliver something, we champion that. We don't necessarily ask the the harder follow up questions of did how, it what, work exactly, was it what efficient? was the cost, you know, did he was consult? it was it democratic? <laughs> Just trifles. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I think it's because he was a larger than life character, and he was able to build. Train lines and so on and so forth. Well, he was and certainly
0: able to build his own myth. Yeah. So, the last version of the chapter I read, I'm not sure whether you've changed it in the meantime again. Yeah. He comes across as a 19th century Muldoon.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think that's right. He was thinking big before Muldoon was
0: born. Right. So, <laughs> and nevertheless, some of the rail lines that Vogel delivered are still operational today. That's true, but,
1: you know, very quickly. 1818 1880 sorry there's a parliamentary uh, inquiry into the the rail lines and they they find you know most of the lines are, have been built for political reasons, total waste of money there are all sorts of stories. That are springing up about corruption. So I think it's actually the Minister of Works was accused of building a railway line in his own electorate. (laughs)
0: There seems Uh, to be a bit of a theme here. Yeah.
1: So there is a theme there that runs through the history of infrastructure in New Zealand. But yeah, I mean, counterfactuals are well, you know, did the state have to, to build everything? Not necessarily. I mean, there's a rail line and this is one of the points that I identify in the report is the importance of private enterprise and there's a company that builds a very successful line between Manawatu and Wellington. So is
0: that the first big theme then of your report, asking actually just how big should central government be and how big and how influential should it be in infrastructure delivery? C-
1: correct. What is the, uh, the balance between private enterprise and the state. And my conclusion is that New Zealand has been able to be more successful when we've leveraged private enterprise. Which Vogel didn't do? Not not to the extent that he, he could have. So
0: what is the counter-example um, then in New Zealand infrastructure history? Where was a project delivered mainly by the private sector? I mean, you will always have some state involvement, obviously. Sure. But where is the positive counter-example to Vogel? Yeah, so I think,
1: you know, if we can sort of bookend the report, as it were, Jump from Vogel to my last chapter where I I look at broadband. I think this is a great example of where New Zealand was able to utilise the private sector to, to deliver infrastructure in a good way. So the state steps in to invest in the core infrastructure. You know, the context here is telecom had legacy infrastructure. It had an effective monopoly. There wasn't really an incentive for it to take on huge risk, on a a new and uncertain technology. The Crown recognises that. They establish Crown Fibre Holdings. They invest in the, the core infrastructure that can be shared. But then it's up to the private companies to roll it out.
0: And it was private delivery by political design. Correct. And you were lucky enough to talk with one of the architects.
1: Yeah, Stephen Joyce. And, you know, that was a really fascinating discussion because... In New Zealand, in recent times, we haven't made enough of private sector delivery. So, you know, talking to him just about, you know, the appointment of people to lead Crown Fibre Holdings.
0: Yeah, and uh, that was quite a contrast to what was happening on the other side of the Tasman Sea. So at the same time, the Australians were trying the same. They built the... uh national broadband network, but from everything we know from Australia, that's been a complete disaster.
1: Yeah, that's right. So the cost there to frame this up is, I think the last time I checked it, <laughs> it's moving up all the time, but it, it's in excess of 50, 50 billion Australian dollars now.
0: Whereas ours oh, well, was delivered?
1: One po- one 1.8. 1. 1.8. 1. 1.8 1. 8 billion. In Yes, and we're getting a return on that because there are interesting revenue sharing. And it was delivered on time. Yeah. The and Australians actually
0: started uh, with uh, that one tool.
1: Exactly. And we actually have a superior technology. And if you look at the international data, our coverage is better. The speed is better as well. So we, we have a superior product and it costs far, far less. And it's
0: So that's the first lesson really we can learn and it. Depends really on the design of your policies a lot, yeah, and how much you involve the private sector in the delivery of them.
1: That that's exactly right. You know, if private investors aren't willing to get involved in a project, you know, caution be my my watchword.
0: Okay, but there was a second theme that I picked up from reading the draft chapters, and that theme actually relates to our work on localism. So you argue in quite a few of the chapters that the utilisation of local knowledge for infrastructure delivery is crucial. Why?
1: Correct. You know, it's, to sort of backtrack here, it's a very popular idea in New Zealand at the moment that we we need a new centralised Ministry of Works well, we centralise um, everything at the it, moment. It, exactly, but the problem with the Ministry of Works is it didn't work. And when you dig into the history of infrastructure policy in New Zealand, a lot of the really good examples are of local communities, local authorities, building the things that they need.
0: So and that started early on, 19th century. Yeah,
1: right? exactly. So, Can you give us a few examples yeah. of the
0: kinds of things that were built?
1: Yeah, so lots of you know small things, but also larger things. So one of the stories that I really love... It's about this chap called William White. He's a hotel owner in the South Island. and what, he built What time? 19th century, so mm-hmm. we're talking, I think it's about 1860s. Mm-hmm. And he builds the first bridge over the Y Macareri, and he's liaising with the Canterbury Provincial Council, and they say, well, OK, you, you sound like <laughs> you know what you're doing here, and mm-hmm. we'll go ahead and we'll give you rights to levy a toll for a period of, I think it was about six or seven years and he, he got the job done, and, and then they went back for more. That's one example. We have lots of other projects, toll roads in the Taranaki in the 19th century. All and, local initiatives. Correct, correct. Mm-hmm. There's lots of stuff also in the 1920s where uh, local authorities say, oh, we need this new piece of kit. Let's raise some debt, targeted Fund and we'll vote on it in in the local community.
0: Yeah, it seems to me that back in the day there was more self reliance and less waiting for Wellington. Correct. I mean, I think the story of the Napier rebuild after the earthquake uh, was the same, right?
1: Yeah, and and this is you know a great shame I think about how we discuss these things because always in the wake of uh, catastrophe. The first week you have stories of how great the self-reliance is. You know, the local people, whether they're in Muriwai or the Hawke's Bay, wherever they are in New Zealand, they know what their communities need and they tend to do a very good job when push comes to shove. The problem is once that crisis abates, people (laughs) seem to forget (laughs) that localism worked and it's back to the same old, Okay, we'll just have the generic, you know, large state
0: Okay, so the two themes we've discussed so far are totally compatible with each other, so you need more private initiative and more private delivery, and you also then need to the locals. So basically the story is to take Wellington out of it as much as possible. Yes, you probably need them for some strategic oversight, but when it comes to the delivery and when it comes to actually figuring out what communities need, it's not Wellington that you need to listen to. Correct. But there's a third theme, and I think that also comes through many of the chapters it's the culture mm-hmm. the country needs to want delivery of infrastructure mm. that, give, can you give us an example of that
1: yeah it's become a, a, a dirty word development for a variety of reasons but we've landed at a you know a place that I don't think it, it's helping anyone you know so this past couple of weeks I've been looking into consenting in New Zealand and You know, we have net zero targets, we've declared a climate emergency, but we can't build wind farms (laughs) because the regulatory holdups are so great.
0: So there are massive differences, actually, in the planning culture, in the public attitude towards development. I mean, previously, and you can give plenty of examples, there were people who said, well, this place needs a bridge or this place needs a road, let's build it. And then it was done and there was not much planning legislation involved and they Just did it, yeah. And nowadays, of course, if you want to do anything, whether it's a new wind farm or a new road or a new bridge or new anything, and you will have the naysayers and the nimbies, uh, the bananas, the you know, build absolutely nothing anywhere, any, anyone <laughs> faction, and you will always find the endangered parrot hamster that just happens to live in this patch and has to be yes. relocated. And they are always. M- a thousand reasons why this can't be done. An endangered species of always. grass. Always. <laughs> By the way, not just in New Zealand, I mean, it's same story around the world. We've become so anti-development because we always find some reasons to say no.
1: Yeah. Why? That's right. <sighs> why? That's a million-dollar question. I think it's a slow accretion of regulation. You know, we're seeing this with how we're going about the RMA reforms. Mm. Things added on top of one another, And, we've and these laws become longer and e- longer e- over time. Exactly. So you go to repeal the really long law with an even <laughs> But it's a deeper philosophical yes, reason. So we've lost sight of the benefits of development and, and building the things that we need. You know, a thousand page report on the parrot or the, the grass, you know, that may be interesting to people who are interested yes. in parrots and grass, but it doesn't help you build the things that you Indeed.
0: need. Uh, isn't there a wider philosophical point here? New Zealand, 19th century, was basically the last project at the very la- late end of the Enlightenment period when things were possible because people believed in progress.
1: That's right. That's our intellectual inheritance. But it's, it's that conceptual inheritance matched with <laughs> you just had to, to build things to survive. Yeah. So the incentives were very strongly aligned. You know, you didn't have a road network. You didn't have all these things that we, we take for granted now. They had to build them. And I think it's the mix of those two things. And, mm. and we've lost sight of that. And part of, part of this report is, is trying to recapture for New Zealanders the fact that this actually is part of our DNA. We were able to to get things done and we can do so again. And so I just try and... It's a different world of times, that.
0: and I'm sure you would have come across this when you went to the archives. When new pieces of infrastructure were opened in the past, they were big celebrations. There were fireworks, there were ribbon-cutting ceremonies, They were really almost public holidays for them because people were so excited. And now we've got infrastructure projects, and what I find bit strange is actually we don't even celebrate
1: yeah we, we celebrate the announcement of the big project that but we probably don't need but not the actual delivery and i mean the auckland harbour bridge was a a great example you know there were songs written holidays dignitaries you know you name it it, it was happening and there was this um, a song
0: for the opening of the auckland yeah,
1: harbour bridge and there's this kind of i was always touched by this kind of quaint Mid twentieth century positivity about development because <laughs> that just wouldn't happen with the
0: you know say a second crossing or whatever it is. Well, nowadays I think when we open big things, even really big things like transmission gully, the coverage is typically yeah. But this is now fifteen years. To well, right. uh, we first uh, yeah. talked about it in the forties. It was uh, <laughs> a massive cost overrun. And it still doesn't work, and there's no mobile coverage when you drive through it. So we, we immediately negative.
1: Yeah, exactly. But I guess if yeah, if something is <laughs> costing a lot of money and it's it's very late, it's hard to <laughs> to get in behind it. So I think that's where you know getting that strapping those regulatory hurdles yeah. and focusing on what matters to get things done can get people behind the projects. It
0: just demonstrates a completely changed mood.
1: Yep. That, that's true, but as a historian, you know, I'm trained to go back and identify forks in the road and try and recover things that we may have lost for now, but we haven't lost forever.
0: So that would have been my final question, actually. As a historian, you look backwards, you're not a futurologist, but what would you like the current generation to learn from your report? And, and do you think it is possible, even in theory, to go back to the Development framework that New Zealand once had.
1: It's always possible. I think if New Zealand is going to navigate its way out of you know this infrastructure morass that it's found itself in, we need to return to the basics. Uh, what are the basics? It's leveraging the private sector, private enterprise. It's focusing and prioritizing local interests over what Wellington has seen. And then finally, it's about, you know, rekindling that, that cultural appetite for, you know what, we need to build these wind farms. We need to, you know, do this or do that. There's no reason why we can't.
0: That's a good conclusion. And I, I think this will be a very important report. And I hope that it informs our debates, especially in this election year. And maybe it makes us learn things from our own past to become a better country again. Let's hope so. Thank you, Matthew.
1: Thank you, Oliver.